0: Hi right, guys, come on in, sit down and relax, put in your fancy iPhone earbuds, you're about to listen to Let's Talk Iran and Stuff, a podcast about all things Iran related, and pretty much anything else I find to be particularly interesting. I'm your host, my name is Reza Marashi. I'm an Iranian American, I'm a lovable jerk, I'm the people's champion, and most importantly, I'm the research director at the National Iranian American Council. I'm sitting here live in my office in Washington, D.C., and before we go any further, make sure to support NIAC at www.niacouncil.org, and you can also check us out on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Ask Jeeves or any other online platform of your choosing. This is episode number six of the podcast since our reboot in May. If you haven't listened to the first five episodes yet, you need to check them out. For new listeners, here's a quick refresher course about the mission of this podcast. In my eternal quest to give knowledge to the people, I'm going to hit up as many friends and colleagues as possible to share their expertise with you about all things Iran-related and pretty much anything else I find to be particularly interesting. Like a fine wine, this podcast will only get better with age, so if you keep listening, I'll keep providing you with top-notch content that's free from the typical Washington, D.C. spin, and that's a Reza Mirashi promise. This week, my guest is Nagas Bajogli. She's a postdoctoral research associate in international affairs at the Watson Institute at Brown University, and she recently received her Ph.D. in sociocultural anthropology from New York University. Her research focuses on pro-regime cultural producers in Iran and is based on fieldwork conducted with Basij, Ansari Hezbollah, and Revolutionary Guard media producers in Iran from 2009 to 2015. Nagas is also the co-founder of the nonprofit organization Iranian Alliances Across Borders, and she's been featured in media outlets such as the New York Times Magazine, Washington Post, PBS NewsHour, and NPR, among many others. Nagas and I talked about the Iran-Iraq war playing a key role in contemporary Iranian politics, the biggest misconceptions about the IRGC and Basij, the relationship between Iran's government and people, survivors of chemical warfare in Iran, and how a 24-year-old Tupac song speaks to a lot about what's going on in America today. I think you're going to like it a lot. I think you're going to learn a lot. And much respect to Nagas for agreeing to chop it up with me. So, without further ado, enjoy the show. morning ask myself it's like myself
1: you ready yeah we're good we're live nice to see you
2: nice to see
0: you too thank you for
1: doing this of
2: course so
1: i i, I tell i've told this to all my guests so far uh, and i think there's been five uh you're on the short list like <laughs> when, when when i somehow convinced trita to let me do this because he was very scared that I was going to be like dropping F-bombs and not yeah. talking about anything that had to do with anything. But eventually he he, he let me do it. Uh, I made a list of people that I wanted to invite, and you were on the short list. And the reason why you were on the short list is because I feel like a, a lot of Iranian-Americans that are our friends know that you're awesome and know you've done a lot of awesome stuff. Yeah, but I feel like uh, if we can get more Iranian-Americans or more people generally to listen to this, uh, they're going to hear all this awesome stuff and then... Uh, I think that's good because the whole point of this podcast is to give knowledge to the people. Right. That is what we're here for. So, thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Of course. I feel honored. Man, don't say that. That makes me seem more important than I really am. Uh, (laughs) But I always start off with a song that the guest chooses, and you chose Tupac Changes, Uh uh, which is awesome because Tupac is awesome. Um, But why did you choose the song?
2: So... um, I grew up in the 90s, and 90s hip-hop and R&B is what I grew up on. And we're in D.C., and I grew up in this area, and I listened religiously to 95.5 WPDC. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh. so, you know, I grew up on Tupac Biggie and, and all of the amazing R&B and, and hip-hop that was going on in the 90s. Tupac, for me, was someone who, I think for anyone who kind of grew up in the 90s, was he was important if you were into that sort of music. Absolutely. Um, and Changes, in particular, I love that song because I think it has a really positive message. But I think it also speaks to a lot of what's going on today. And yes. so what's sad about that song, in many ways, is he sang it. I'm probably over 25 years ago in some ways. I don't remember the exact, yeah, probably over 25 years ago. And it's still relevant to today. Um, You know, He talks about police violence. He talks about uh, young black men getting targeted by police. He talks about the war on drugs actually being a war on minority communities, especially African-American communities. And so for me, um, I love the message of the song, but it's also kind of horrible that we still have to be, it, it still rings so true today.
1: I couldn't have said it better. And if you hadn't brought up that uh, I was gonna raise the, I was gonna raise it myself yeah. because, yes, Tupac is awesome. Yes, uh, he was one of the most diverse and impactful artists that we had growing up uh, in, in the '90s. If you listen to hip hop, but also I think that you know he's kind of ahead of his time. Yeah. Uh, like massively ahead of his time, and he was saying real stuff uh, that a lot of other people didn't have the courage to say. And, and unfortunately, it's still poignant today because it right. shouldn't be right. 2025 20, years later. So. Uh, you chose a good song. Cho- choosing your favorite Tupac song, or or just like your top five Tupac songs, is really hard. It is. <laughs> it's really, really. It kind of depends on your mood. Yeah. Like if you're out and about and you're partying, right. you're not gonna think of no. changes. You're gonna <laughs> think <laughs> of I get around and, right. and all the other stuff. But, so yeah, I, I, but for this, for these purposes, it, it is very, very poignant. But um, like Tupac's in my top three. Yeah. And actually, he's in, my, he's in my top five, but he's also in my top three. And when I did the podcast with Eric Ferrari, he was my first guest. Uh-huh. I asked him his top five MCs. And, uh, you know, he's like, oh, how do I answer this question? It is kind of an unfair question. But since you uh, are a fan of hip hop and since you listed Tupac changes as your song, I have to ask you who's your top five?
2: Um, so I would say Tupac, Biggie, um, Dr. Dre, Jay Z. I don't know about the fifth one. That's hard because there are a lot of good people hard. you know, to close out that fifth. but um,
1: Nobody's going to hold you to it.
2: I don't know. (laughs) I feel like my brother's going to listen to this and kill me for my choice for the fifth one. Um, Because he's much more into that scene than I was. Uh, I think the fifth one, oh, man. I don't know. There are so many top people that could go into it. I'll stay with the top four. That's cool.
1: I think <laughs> they're all good choices. And Ramin can't get mad at you because you, you had four very good choices, people that have made uh, a solid catalog of, of, of yeah. albums. So that's all good. And and I, if I'm, I, I think they'd probably all be in my top ten. Yeah. So, yeah, easy.
2: Who would be your top five?
1: Oh, it varies from day to day. I'll be yeah. the first to admit. Um, Tupac, Biggie, Nas, um, Jay-Z, and... Um, man see this is this is where it gets tough. yeah it's the fifth one this that gets tired. The, the fifth one's always tough um i will say for number five um you know i was a big corrupt fan growing mm. up you remember the dog pound yeah. yeah so corrupt was probably like the most lyrical mc that that came from the west coast just rhymes like So so I I I was I was big into him. So I'll I'll list him, acknowledging full well that if I was asked this question tomorrow, it would be five completely different MCs. But yeah. Well,
2: actually, I'll close out with Kendrick Lamar.
1: How could you not? Yeah, his his latest
2: album I think was just amazing. I couldn't agree more.
1: I could actually. So when you say his latest album, do you mean the the one like the unfinished, untitled one, or do you mean uh, To Pimp a Butterfly? To Pimp a Butterfly. Yeah, that album was fantastic. I love that one. Yeah, that was really really good. Solid choice. Solid solid choice. Um, Now. I could sit here and talk about hip-hop all night, but that's not why we brought you here. You you chose an awesome song, uh, but really we brought you here to talk about a lot of the awesome stuff that you do and that you have been doing and that you've been up to. Um, And it's hard for me to pick which one I want to talk about first, um, but let's slay the wolf nearest the sled. So you just started a postdoctoral fellowship at Brown University. Mm -hmm. And uh, for those of you that don't know what a postdoc is – uh, it means that you essentially teach and you turn your doctoral dissertation into a book, right. uh, which is awesome. Obviously, I'm summing it up. Every postdoc is different, but if you strip it down to it's bare bones. Um, so tell the people what it is that uh, your doctoral dissertation and soon-to-be book is on. Uh, you did uh, a lot of fieldwork in Iran, and it's super interesting, and it's super unique, and why why should people listen to me talk about it when they could listen to the actual person that did it
2: sir sure. so um, the the short of the long of it is that the the dissertation I'm looking my big question was how does a country that's gone through a revolution and that the revolution succeeded how does that government keep a commitment to the revolution alive as generations change so now my focus was on Iran so Iran's Islamic Republic is going into its fourth decade and the majority of the population are under the age of 35, meaning they don't remember the revolution and they don't remember the war, which were the foundational moments of the Islamic Republic. Right. And there's a lot of – those very same young people are posing a lot of different sorts of challenges to the state. So how does the Islamic Republic try to keep its, founda- its uh, regime alive going into its fourth decade? Um, And one of the main ways in which, um, you know, countries all over sort of do this is via media. So my research focuses on uh, the media makers in uh, Iran's Basij, Revolutionary Guard, and Hezbollah groups. So my research, I spent many years in Iran working alongside the men, because they're all men who do this sort of work, who are in the Basij, Hezbollah, and the Revolutionary Guard who focus on producing media, whether it's films um, from narrative to documentary or TV series um, or even things for online use. Um, So I was really looking at who these men are, where they get their funding sources from, who makes the decisions about what sorts of media should be produced, who are they trying to target, and how do they try to produce uh, media that would bring... Those targeted audiences and their targeted audiences are young people into sort of l- listening and and watching what they're producing and how do they compete with satellite television? So so many people are watching right. satellite TV today. So many people are bypassing all of that and just going straight to the internet. Um, and yes, the, you know the Islamic Republic has control over the um, state television, but. You know, the, people watch state television. I don't want to say they don't, but for entertainment value, a lot of people instead choose to go to satellite TV or the internet or different th- sorts of things like that, or buying VCDs of films that have just come out of Hollywood on the street. Um, and so I was really looking at how they try to uh, get young people to watch what they're making. And this has become really important since the Ahmadinejad years because um, the Revolutionary Guard has. Um, is now one of the most independently wealthy is the most independently wealthy um, uh, organization in the Islamic Republic. So it has a ton of money, and it's pouring a lot of that money into media production because it understands that just like um, Khamenei and the state proclaim, and I don't think they're wrong in this, that uh, the West is uh, you know f- waging a soft war media. Uh, media war against Iran, uh, they have to pour money into sort of countering that. Um, and so I was really looking into where all this money is going and who's producing what and how they make those decisions in the editing room and the production room
1: and all those sorts of things. I mean, that's, uh, obviously that's fascinating for a ton of reasons. And I have so many questions that build off of that that I want to ask. Um, you have, uh, I mean, how how have narratives of the Iran-Iraq war, which was the formative experience for a a lot of these men, not all Mm -hmm. of them, because the younger people obviously not, but for a lot of the men that I'm sure you encountered Mm -hmm. when you were doing your field research in in Iran, how have the narratives of the Iran-Iraq war begun to reformulate themselves today? Like how are they taking these narratives uh, and and trying to use them in in an effort to connect with the younger generation Mm -hmm. and to what degree have they been successful?
2: Yeah, so You know, within the social sciences, we talk about how most countries have a foundation narrative. So in this country, our foundation narrative is about the pilgrims coming and... Yeah. Um, you know, wanting to, you know, making good with the Indians, even though that none of that <laughs> no, that didn't really happen. <laughs> yeah. None of that happened, but th- yeah. this is what we're taught in school, right? And Thanksgiving and, and sort of this peacemaking over eating and things like that. Yeah. Um, and also wanting to be independent from colonial rule and the revolution. So if you look at countries, there's always this sort of foundation mar- narrative that they go back to. And Iran's foundation story really is the war because it can't be the revolution. The revolution was too messy for the Islamic Republic to claim. Yep. There were too many secularists. There were too many nationalists too many feminists, too many liberals, um, too many leftist communists. So it's not something that they can really pull and say, this is is our foundation. Instead, they point to the Iran-Iraq war, because that was really the moment in which they were able to not only uh, consolidate their power, but also consolidate their narrative. That was the point where they could say, our soldiers meaning the volunteer soldiers and the Jews, our soldiers are fighting the right fight against this imposed war from Iraq. Um, And then because many Western countries were supporting Iraq during the time, it was also this really um, story that they could rally people behind by saying all these countries are against us and yet we're standing up to them. so the the war obviously has played a very, very important role in the Islamic Republic. And throughout the 80s and 90s in Iran, they made movie. I mean, movie after movie after movie about what they call the sacred defense or yeah. to play um, But what they've realized in the past, I want to say beginning in um, – well let me back up a lot of filmmakers began to realize a lot of those films were you know for propaganda no one was paying attention to them but this the pro regime cultural organizations themselves began to publicly um recognize that in uh, in like the mid 2000s uh like 2000 starting in 2005 2006 and so what they began to start to think about is how can they Still stick to the stories of the war, but make them a more uh, of more entertainment value for people to watch, and then also really begin to address questions of what they were seeing in Iran today, problems that they were seeing today, but couch them in the terms of the Iran Iraq War. Right. Um, and so that's where I think things have started to become really interesting because a lot of what the movies that are being made today about the Iran Iraq War actually have nothing to do with the history of the Iran Iraq War itself. Um, Or they're using songs that were made many years after the war finished, but they're putting them in on these scenes of battle that are important for young people because they're using pop songs that are banned in Iran that they're getting from, you know, L.A. stars, for example, and using those in their songs. But they're doing it not because they're trying to be historically factual, but because they're trying to use those as a way to get people to watch their films. And then their films end up being about many things from don't trust opposition figures to um, this is the way to be a real man. I mean, masculinity is still a very, very big topic in Iran and within these pro-regime films. Um, And this is the right way to be a citizen of the Islamic Republic. Those are sort of the main things that they're hitting upon. Um, And so that started to happen um, from 2007 onwards in Iran.
1: Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me because, so the the Iran-Iraq war plays this fundamental role in the Islamic Republic. Uh, but once you leave Iran and then you start to talk about the Iran-Iraq war mm-hmm. outside of Iran, it becomes this very Western-centric, super politicized, like, you know, uh, the IRGC is bad and and, and, and and monolithic. and And it just becomes disconnected from what a lot of what I hear is happening in the country. And now I'm sitting here talking with somebody that's done the field research. So it's, explain to me why you think the Iran-Iraq War plays such a fundamental role in the Islamic Republic. And I know you talked about founding narrative, mm-hmm. but let me put it to yeah. you perhaps a little bit differently. To what degree are narratives of the war really about the desires that various stakeholders have about the future
0: oh, of see. the Islamic yeah.
2: Republic? Um, well, th- it's, it's this is a great question and I think this is something that's always really difficult especially when we're trying to understand Iran from outside and the, and from the West because as you said the Iran Iraq war is a war that most people outside of Iran have forgotten because even in Iraq there have been multiple wars since then <laughs> sad so, been true you know. so but the Iran Iraq war continues to play a very very pivotal role for the political elite in Iran today and why that's the case is because many, first of all, many of the people who fought in the war were extremely young at the time. And so that means that now they're in their mid-40s and 50s. They are now the political elite in Iran today. Their formative years, how they were shaped were eight years of really intense warfare. And when we think about warfare, today we think about warfare with drones, and we think about sort of long, you know, it's, it's not warfare that's fought really in the trenches and that's fought in close combat. The Iran-Iraq War was a, of, a war that was fought in close combat and in trenches. And with with really, it was a horrific war in many ways. And so because of that, these soldiers, these men who went to war have these very intense memories, and many of them fought for many years of those eight years. So for them, this is extremely important. Now, what does that mean for the future? It means that the experiences that they had in this war continue to be important to them today. So what do I mean by that? First, they have experience with the fact that um, with the knowledge of the West and even the UN, um, chemical warfare and the capability of chemical warfare was sold to Iraq. And Iraq used chemical bombs against Iranian soldiers and civilians. The UN later knew about it, Western countries knew about it, and nothing was done. So why is that important? It means that a lot of this distrust that we see today between Iran and the U.S. and between Iran and the West comes from that. Absolutely. Um, A lot of sort of the the different dealings that happened, um, which many people have written about about arms sales and things like that that happened via Iraq for the Iran-Iraq war and in prolonging this war in many ways, a lot of that continues to sort of haunt these men. Um, So what does this mean for you know any time i mean i have never i've talked to hundreds of men who are in the guards and in the basij and if they are above the age of 40 um and hold any sort of political influence in iran every discussion we have always goes back to the iran-iraq war so for them it's hard for them to even think about how they will do politics without constantly referring back to the iran-iraq war. So to get back to your question, I know this is a long and convoluted answer, but for them it's difficult to think about the future of the Islamic Republic without couching it in the framework of the iran-iraq war because that's that's where that's how they grew up. You know, in many ways that that was their political formation. That's how they understand the world. And um in order, I think, for, for those of us who sort of care about what will happen in Iran and, and understand what, politically what's going on, we really have to understand that war um, and understand those eight years. And for me, as a student of Iranian politics for so many years, I never really wanted to study the war because um, spending time in Iran, you see, you know, you you used to see much more than now, um, murals of, of men who had been martyred. And it, it kind of seems like this... Um, the story that the state completely owns, and you don't really want to have much to do with it because it seems like it's pure propaganda. But once you begin to dig a little bit deeper, you begin to realize that there's this is the framework by which the political elite in Iran understand international relations. And so you can't un, you can't engage with international relations in Iran within in many ways understanding this political framework.
1: No, I, I, could, I couldn't have said it better. Um, I couldn't have said a better A because I didn't do the field work. You did. But also, my interactions with Iranian officials over the past, I mean, predominantly since 2013, because that's when they started to talk to people outside right. <laughs> right. like, again. That has been my experience as well. Um, it, 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 it's pretty remarkable. And I, I i mean, God, I have so many different directions I want to take it in. But let me ask you this I mean, when you're doing research on SEPA and the Basi issue, so paramilitary organizations in Iran, What have you found to be the biggest misconception about these organizations outside of Iran? So for me, for example, Mm -hmm. um, it's that they're not monolithic and that they don't constantly toe the supreme leader's line. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Washington, they are monolithic. And whatever Khomeini says, that's the word of God and it goes. So for me, those are the biggest misconceptions. But again, mm-hmm. I didn't do the field work. Yeah. You did. So I'm genuinely interested to hear what do you think are the biggest misconceptions?
2: I think that one is probably the hugest. That yeah. that um, that these organizations are monolithic and the Khomeini says one thing and the rest of them sort of fall in line. That's definitely not the case. Yeah. These organizations, both within especially the bass siege because it's in many ways not as formalized as the revolution i mean the revolutionary Guard acts much more like a military because it is a military force but um, but both organizations uh, they disagree with one another all the time. They disagree with what Khamenei has to say. They may, depending on what role they have, they may not be able to publicly say that. But amongst themselves, they do talk about these things constantly. Um, There are members of of these organizations or groups that they have, because these organizations in many ways also function ad hoc, especially the Basij. It functions as an ad hoc organization. It's not like, yes, the commander of the Basij says one thing and, and, you know, in the news um, it behooves the Islamic Republic for it to pretend like, you know, because this is another thing. It's not just in Washington that we think that these organizations are monolithic but within Iran the Islamic Republic also wants to project this image that they're monolithic right. because that, that shows that they're more powerful that's in that a good way point. You yeah, know? Yeah. and so um, but on the ground that's not how they function um, and I think that's probably a, one of the biggest misconceptions another one is that actually many of the men in these organizations want change in Iran in a tempered way many of them are reformists um, and uh, again, we have to remember that um, a vast majority of them voted for Khatami in the, in the elections in 1997. So That's they right. voted for reform. Many of them, I know, when I was doing field work, voted for Musavi and even were on the streets protesting. It's hard to say how the numbers because then, with the way things turned out, a lot of them were um, will not admit to it. But because I was there doing field work with them, I. Was there when they were on the streets? A few of them they were beaten up worse in many ways than other protesters because the the Basij that were attacking could recognize that they were also Basijis or Sepahis, and so they would attack them more in many ways because they you know they were going out of line quote unquote. Right. Um, and so those things I think are really important to understand. So this notion that they are really hardline and that they follow Khamenei all the way or or in some some people will say Khamenei now follows them, you know, whatever it may be. Um, I don't think that that is, I think that there are hardline factions in these groups, but I don't think that that is, it it doesn't go straight down the line. Um, And I think something that people don't recognize that needs to be recognized is that these men have kids. Their kids go to the same schools as you know, the 75% of the population that's under the age of 35. They're they're all in the same schools together mostly. And they, those kids hear what, you know, their neighbors and their school friends say about what's going on. They, they kind of want the same things too. And so what I've, what surprised me the most is two things. One, those who have children now who are teenagers and are in their first couple of years of college, they challenge their fathers a lot on, on what, happened in the 80s what happened in the 90s what's going on in Iran today and the ones that I've seen that have changed the most actually are the ones who have daughters because um, they now are in the situation in which their daughters are facing the restrictions that they themselves supported or helped put into power how about that and so now they're like, well, maybe this actually wasn't a very good idea. How and and I, 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 I've i seen for me, it was, you know, some of I I didn't kind of realize this until the very end of my field work. But I was kind of thinking, OK, why are, you know, these X, Y and Z people, um, why are they so much more open to change in Iran? And and, and B, why are they so, uh, you know, much more willing to speak to me than the the others? And I began to realize the common denominator in all of that was that they had daughters um, who who I think helped them, sort of push them to change, to think differently.
1: I think this is an important point you're making, not just because it describes like granularity that we don't often hear a- a- about Iran, but, but also in, in two other really important ways. One, you know, rule number one of Iranian politics is that Iran has politics. Yeah. Right? Um, often completely not discussed here in Washington, D.C., but also this idea of how change comes to a country, whether we're talking about Iran or anywhere else. And I think this feeds into a broader discussion that is very relevant to the presidential election we're having here in the Mm -hmm. United States. You know, you, this neoliberal idea of punching countries in the face and trying to realign their societies right. um, is coming back to bite us in the ass in more ways than one. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so without opening up that I mean, we can talk about that if you want mm-hmm. to. But that's a whole nother can of worms. But for the for the purposes of Iran, you know, we have these discussions here uh, in the U.S. And, and, and some of it's in the Iranian American community. Some of it's outside the Iranian American community. But like we need to free Iran. Like mm-hmm. OK, well, what does that mean? Let's mm-hmm. unpack that. Right. Um, who's asking? To be freed, first right. and foremost. And then, um, if we have people inside of Iran, they're like, yeah, we want to bring about change. Well, then, how, how are they asking for the change to be brought about? Mm-hmm. And I think the story that you're telling now is very different than the story that you see on CNN when they show pictures of, of, of women with purple fingers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and that's the irony of it is here you have this election and, and you wrote about it. So I want to ask you about mm-hmm. it. You have the parliamentary elections mm-hmm. that come after the election where Rouhani gets elected. Mm-hmm. People still turn out and vote mm-hmm. despite the fact that the list that they put together were people that they never would have voted for in a million years. Right. Even four to eight years ago. Right. They still turn out and vote. Yeah. Uh, and 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 it stands out to me for two reasons. One, um, our election in the U.S. is kind of like that now, yeah. where we're voting for somebody we would have you ne- probably wouldn't vote for otherwise, right. because the other guy is is you know a, a white Ahmadi Najad. Right. That's one. And then two, we have this dynamic where all these people talking about free Iran, free Iran, the regime's terrible. It's like okay, like we are, absolutely, I'd love to see positive changes come to Iran, where political, economic, and social aspirations are better fulfilled. But how does that change get brought about? And mm-hmm. if I see millions of people, the vast majority of the population, going and voting despite knowing better than anybody outside of the country the limitations and the obstacles that they're facing, I think that sends a very powerful message. Mm-hmm. And it's a message that oftentimes goes over people's heads or is just intentionally ignored right. here in this beautiful city that I live in. Right. So I think this is an important degree of, of granularity that, that, that doesn't oftentimes get discussed. Um, but uh, – I want to circle back to something that you had mentioned mm-hmm. before in your uh, uh, in one of the answers that you gave earlier. Because in addition to conducting field work in Iran for PhD, you also made a documentary film.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and your documentary film was about volunteer soldiers who were exposed to chemical weapons during mm-hmm. the Iran-Iraq war. And I haven't been to Iran in 10, 11 years. And I can't go because of my previous employer. Right. But when I was there, I think this is one of the things that stood out to me the most. Um, Everybody's got a story, and it, eventually you come across a story of somebody who is a survivor, who is a survivor of chemical warfare. Mm-hmm. So, tell the people about the premise of your documentary and what your major takeaways were after researching it and filming.
2: It. Mm-hmm. So, um, actually, I uh, I s- became. I was exposed to the story of chemical warfare during the war, um, I think in 2004 or 2005. Um, I was doing a completely different project, had nothing at all to do with the war or anything like that, but I was helping to put together a list of nonprofits in the country, NGOs in the country, in the aftermath of the BAM earthquake. Someone introduced me to, um, because the idea was that if another natural disaster like that happens, we need to have enough organizations on the ground to pull together support. So someone introduced me to this organization of veterans who had been exposed to chemical warfare and were helping to raise uh, awareness about it. Because that's another thing. A lot of people in Iran, um, especially about 10 years ago, didn't know much about the chemical warfare exposure because they thought it was, oh, another sort of propaganda from the state, you know, and they didn't know about it because a lot of these attacks happened towards the end of the war, and people were already really sort of tired and wanted to move on from the war. Um, so these veterans um, w- uh, were working a lot in the Kurdish regions of the country, and so I visited those areas. And that was the first time I even sort of came across this issue, and it was kind of one of those, um, you know, a light bulb went off in my head because I was spending time with these veterans, many of whom um, were, you know, continue to be very active in the sepah today, and I was, in truth be told, completely terrified completely terrified to be in, you know, the, the areas of the country where I, I hadn't been before and I sure. didn't know anybody. So, sure, so sure. like, the Kurdish areas of the country. And I was there completely alone with these men. And I thought to myself, now nah, I guess you're really stupid for doing this. And, what <laughs> you know, what what are you thinking? Because of the the image of them that I had been raised with. So I grew up, again, in, in this region, uh, in this area, uh, in the Northern Virginia area, um, from a family of leftists, who I was raised really sort of, you know, these men are horrible and everything they've done in Iran is bad. And here I was alone with them. Um, And um, it was during that trip that I began to realize things are a little bit more complicated than I thought and that I had, you know, believed for many years. Um, And that's kind of when I began to even Uh, work on issues of chemical warfare. So to make a really long story short, the reason I'm sort of saying this is because, you know, a lot of people ask, how did you get into issues of chemical warfare? And then how are you able to do the research? And I think a lot of it came from, I spent five years working on oral histories and um, working with veterans who had been exposed to chemical warfare. And one of the reasons is because um, the doctors, in Iran and around the world, don't fully understand what's going on to those who had been exposed to chemical warfare because the countries that helped produce these chemicals do not release what was in the chemicals because of IP law, because of IP. So that <laughs> because of intellectual property and wow. profit reasons, they don't release what these chemical bombs were made of. And because the doctors are not quite sure what was in them, and be, and also that this sort of combination of chemicals had not been used before on humans, um, it's very difficult for doctors to be able to treat these patients correctly. Um, so what the only thing that we're certain of now is that after about 30 years of exposure, they begin to develop very aggressive forms of cancer or their lungs completely collapse, and so they're beginning to sort of, unfortunately, um, pass away. <laughs> Because of that, um, we began to collect oral histories um, in order to be able to have documentation of what had happened to them and the different treatment they had and and what it was that they've been living with for the past 30 years. Um, And so it was through that project that I became, you know, more aware of these issues and I met the protagonist of my story. And I... um, for anyone who's done any sort of documentary work in Iran knows it's it's actually not a very easy country to do documentary work in because in order to make a compelling documentary, you need to sort of have your protagonist be willing to tell you even the lowest points of their lives. And a lot of times for Iranians, that's difficult to do. They don't want that, you know, I, and I think I understand that very well. You don't want and you want to be able to see that. Um, So it took about four years to really be able to sort of um, gain the trust to have a camera and in their homes and be able to make this film. Um, And my takeaway from that really was, is that um, no matter what you think of what's happened in Iran the past almost 40 years now, there is a story, a a very humane story of um, suffering and survival and mostly survival um, that comes from those who've been exposed to chemical warfare whether it's from the soldiers or the civilians themselves and i think the biggest thing is that especially the veterans who were exposed feel completely utilized and used by the government um, once you get to know them very well, you'll begin to see that they have a lot of critiques of what's been going on and the way that they've been used for political purposes. Um, but in many ways, they can't talk about that because they receive chem- they receive medical benefits from the state, and a lot of them don't have money. Right. So they they require about t- a lot of them require multiple surgeries for a year, so they don't have the money to pay for that, and they need to have receive the support of the state. So you know, these are things that I think. Come from you know, these are the 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 contradictions in these stories that you were pointing to before that where we think very monolithically about them. But when you spend enough time and actually get to know people and listen to their stories over a long period of time, and this is why I think you know what the one of the worst things that happened during the Aminish years. I mean, there are many we can go that, <laughs> but one of the worst is that they kicked out um, journalists who've been there for a very long period of time because it's only after establishing trust over a long period of time, especially for people who in some way are, are connected to the state, that you're able to get these more complicated stories out. Otherwise, if you're only just in there reporting for five days or whatever it may be, you're only gonna get sort of the- What they give you. What they give you. And even when I was starting my research with, with the chemical warfare uh, veterans, it was my, I mean, I I go back through my notebooks now, and I'm shocked, so like for the first year, All the stories were the same. It was exactly what you hear on state television in Iran. It would start with, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. And and they would kind of give me the formulaic responses. And it wasn't until a year after I, in and out, in and out, talking with the same sorts of people that eventually they were like, ma'am, this is all bullshit. And this is how I really feel. (laughs) But you have to put in the work to get to that point where they can trust you because so many people have taken advantage of them. So their mistrust, I think, is, I, I understand it. But yeah. but for us who are researchers or journalists or filmmakers or whatever, we we really have to put in that time.
1: Yeah, no, I mean it's an it, it's an amazing story. It's it's a it's a heart wrenching story, uh, but it's an important story mm-hmm. um, because these people not only deserve to have their story told, but I also think that uh, their story is kind of a personification of of the Islamic Republic's story. It's evolution, um, and, and, it, and it tells a story. In a very poignant way, I, I saw the film. I, I thought it was awesome. I highly recommend everybody goes Thank and checks it out. Um, I think it it, it it actually sheds a lot of light into what's going on today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, And even though that's not the intent of the story per se, I, I don't think there's kind of any way around it, mm-hmm. um, my opinion. Um, so, I mean, you've spent all this time talking to so many interesting people past and present that have fought in the war that are affiliated with uh, paramilitary organizations. Have you come across... So let's flip it on its head, right? Mm-hmm. Have you come across pro-reform Iranians who now have perhaps a more favorable view of these paramilitary organizations? And, in, and if you have, then what do you think has been the impetus for that evolution in their views?
2: Yeah. You know, I think... Um, I have... And, really? Uh, yes. Okay. And the impetus um, has been the civil war in Syria S- and ISIS. Uh-huh. So let me clarify. Yeah. Um, after 2009, m- many people, whether they were pro reform or completely even against the Islamic Republic, because of what happened in 2009 and the way in which the regime uh, responded, uh, people were disgusted by the Ba'ath siege. They blamed these organizations for, and I think rightfully so, for attacking civilians and um, really mistreating those who were protesting. That sense of hatred was very palpable. And um, that's also when I was really doing most of my fieldwork at the time. And I-, I could sense that the men who were in these pro-regime um, cultural centers where I was doing my, my research, they were very worried about that. And why were they worried about it is because they thought, okay, we can't have people hating us. Um, But they understood why it had happened. But they were constantly thinking, what can we do to make this change? Uh, And they were producing films to try to show a positive light of the best no one was watching them. Everyone was sort of boycotting those films or they were just kind of, no one was paying attention to them. But it wasn't until the civil war in Syria started and then ISIS became more of an issue in the region in circa summer of 2014. That slowly you began to see the, the messaging in Iran change about the Revolutionary Guard and mostly the Revolutionary Guard. Um, because it all of a sudden became, look everywhere around us is in complete chaos and we live in tranquility and peace. Um, thanks to the Revolutionary Guard who are uh-huh. keeping us safe um and then they began a public relations campaign about Qasem Soleimani the um the commander of the Quds Force who, yeah Qasem. Yeah Hossein um and showing him as like this very intriguing mysterious hero <laughs> because he doesn't really talk very much no, and, he does not. you know and he's so they they and these are also images uh, and representations of masculinity that you can trace back in Iran they have a history and that's why they resonate you know they weren't just they weren't creating um a type of masculinity or a hero that, that wouldn't resonate in Iran. They were very much doing this consciously. Um, and so lately, I think in the past year, you begin to see younger people who very much four or five years ago would have said, you know, F the Basij, we don't want to have anything to do with them, F the uh, Revolutionary Guard, now are saying, um, thank God for the Sepah, they're keeping us safe. And that to me is a... Tremend—that to me is tremendous because, um, because you know, that's a very short period of time in which people have changed their minds. Yeah. But it's not for me. What's interesting about this is that actually they've been working on this for a long period of time. So because I was able to be around them while they were doing, well, you know, while all of this was happening, um, I saw that they were very much sort of planting the seeds of um, "Thank God we're safe because of the Sipah." Thank God there are no bombs going off in Tehran like there are all, all over the region. Thank God, look, ISIS is you know, doing terrorist activities even in the West, but nothing has happened in Tehran. And sometimes you will hear in Iran, um, the Sepah was able to uh, you know, ward off a, um, a potential attack that was supposed to happen in Tehran. Uh, and Those sorts of stories are becoming more and more, um, and a lot of that, some of it may be based in truth. I mean, I don't know the, the details of those things, but this notion that we're being kept safe because of them has uh, helped to change um, the views of people about them, and I think that's particularly important because, um, A, it makes uh, the general population appreciate the military more and that's what the Islamic Republic wants. And B and makes them think, okay, we have it bad, but we don't have it as bad as all these other countries and we need to be thankful for what we do have. And that for me I think is very insidious in many ways, but <laughs> but if you're thinking of it from the perspective of the Islamic Republic, it's been a very sort of strategic thing that they've done.
1: Absolutely, I, I, it, that's fascinating to me because when I asked the question, I legitimately didn't know what the answer was going to oh, be. Really? Yeah, I mean, I been, like I said, I haven't been doing on in a while. So, but uh, so when I'm sitting here thinking of questions that I want to ask based off the conversation that we're having, I mean, it certainly would seem to me that that's the case. Like I hear them right. saying this stuff, we're keeping you safe, as long and so on and so forth. But it's hard to know if people are buying what they're selling, and it sounds like to an increasing degree for what yeah the reasons that and I,
2: you I they mean are. for me, I think one of the biggest um, one of the biggest indicators that, that they're being successful in this was um, and this may be getting into too much detail, but there was a a, a huge funeral of, in June of last year for hundred and seventy five divers from the war actually. this is an important story I'm glad yeah, you're telling us. um from the divers of the war uh, that were found and they were re- you know given back to Iran for a burial service D- things like this have happened. A lot in Iran, in which you know either prisoners of war or the war dead have been found and have been brought back, and these huge sort of state spectacles are put together um, by by the regime. Many times, when you go to these things, it's only those who are visibly very pro regime who are there. But for this funeral um, that happened last June, it was so interesting because so many young people who do not uh, who do not. Look like they're supporters of the Bastige or the Sepah, um, and many times when you talk to them, they kind of they don't really care this, this this either this way or the other, or are very much like no, we really believe in reform and we don't we don't really believe in this. They were there in huge numbers, um, and that for me is an indication in which this sort of messaging is working very. It, it is much more effective than I thought it would be, um, and the the organizers of those funerals. Um, who I've been in touch with, still use that to this day as one huge success story, that they're realizing that their stories are being heard now, and that people are beginning to respect them, and that means a lot to them. So I think that it's not it's not, it's not not just anecdotal, but it's things that we're beginning to see on the ground.
1: You know, it's funny, you mentioned something that you said earlier, and I think uh, something that you said earlier, I think directly connects to the point that you just made now. So you're talking about, yeah, they're not just using anecdotal evidence now they can actually point to things that are concrete and then earlier you had mentioned that uh, there's this um there's this uh it, not only a concerted effort but it's um, so, so, uh, let, let me let me put it a different way so, oh no. Okay, now I remember what you said. I couldn't remember the exact words that you used. So I, then I didn't yeah. want to be like, "Well, I think you said this," but no. So you said that you know they are uh, they're they're making this concerted effort. Um, you know, they're trying to connect young people to uh, you know the, to the Islamic Republic in, in in ways that perhaps weren't as successful before. And 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 so now you have this situation where they're not just pointing to anecdotal evidence, but they actually have concrete stuff. But you know, you also have this dynamic of uh, I mean, so, so t- to what degree are, are, are there parallels with, for example, uh, like what happened when, for example, George W. Bush was running for re-election? Because you said earlier, you know, the Islamic Republic feels, and I also agree with your assessment, not incorrectly, that there's this software going on where, you know, Iran is being portrayed. Zadif calls it Iranophobia, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, I, I agree that that exists, okay? Um and so now they're trying to do stuff to counter it. Mm-hmm. And and this and this is one part of it. Um, and so we're talking about success stories. Like do you think that there's a para, like a, a parallel to for example when Bush ran for two, for re-election against mm-hmm. John Kerry in 2004 and he was the 9/11 president and you know national security essentially catapulted him into winning an election that he actually almost didn't win mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Could you can't make the similar parallel with Rouhani, per se because uh-huh not an exact parallel, but here you had the Bush administration trying to demonstrate to the country, we're the ones that are keeping you safe, you know, we're the post 9-11 people, da-da-da-da-da. Now you have a situation in Iran where not only are they making the argument, we're trying to keep you safe, but you also have a situation in which they are essentially taking what the U.S. is doing and then just doing the same thing in response in a variety of areas, not just towards their population, but also right back to the United States. Like, I, it, so let, me, let me think of it let, let, let me say it like this Okay, mm-hmm. it's not just happening to the people because you've very articulately with, with a lot of good detail described how they're doing it with regards to their population and I, and, and I want to come back to this idea of state and society um, but my question right here is okay for example you have uh, it's no secret you had Stuxnet and other aspects mm-hmm. of cyber warfare that were conducted against Iran uh, in like 2009, 2010 all pre-Rohani stuff mm-hmm. what does Iran do? Iran doesn't back down. When mm-hmm. Iran gets punched in the face, it punches back, mm-hmm. right? You escalate, we escalate. And it starts all of this cyber warfare, mm-hmm. right? But now you have this dynamic where Rouhani comes into office and both sides magically have decided to de-escalate. Mm-hmm. So the Iran are saying, okay, if you fall back, we'll fall back. Right? Um, I mean, to what degree do you think that this is very much intentional and it's very much calibrated to what the United States is doing? Uh, when you look at things like cyber warfare or uh you know the various conflicts that are going on p- proxy warfare is going on in the region um you know the situation in Syria the situation in Iraq the situation in Afghanistan do you think the iranians are basically saying you're telling a story about us that's not true mm-hmm. and you're taking actions that go against our interests so we're going to tell a story about you regardless of whether or not it is true to push back against the same way that you're pushing back against us or do you think that the narrative that you commonly hear in Washington is it's destabilizing and they mm-hmm. need to stop and we can't talk to them about it because then that's rewarding bad behavior? Or is it somewhere in between?
2: I I think it's much more towards the former rather than the latter. I think that, um, you know, Iran is a country that sees the Islamic Republic and Iran as a whole, I think are entities that see themselves as a regional power and th- that because of iran's very long history with the west does not want to be bossed around and and wants to be uh, recognized for its sovereignty and recognized for its independence um and i so i do think a lot of this tit for tat is um is something that I- uh it's n- uh, from the Iranian perspective, and frankly, from the perspective of the Revolutionary Guard, it's not seen as destabilizing. It, it's seen as defensive, and and some of the o- offensive ways that they even do it, whether you know they've launched offensive cyber attacks or uh, some of the things that they do in Syria, um, they see it as necessary in order to be uh, respected. Now, again, this goes back to the Iran Iraq War. It, what what I'm about to say is not necessarily that I agree with this or not, but you know, I know a lot of people will read this or or listen to this and or read some of the things that I write and think, oh, well, you know, where does she stand on this? And that's the thing. My As a researcher, I'm not trying to stand in one way or the other, but I really think it's important to listen to those who have power in Iran because we actually don't know much about them. Absolutely. You know, we are... Um, I used to study uh, youth movements and, w- and women's movements in Iran, um, but then I began to realize we actually, we cannot understand resistance movements in Iran until we understand where the power lies. And for many of us who study Iran, the, the political elite and uh, the Islamic Republic is a black hole. We're, we're kind of uh, understanding it based off of its own perceptions, you know, based off of what uh, state television and the Islamic Republic produces about itself. Uh, and they produce you know, things that uh, that are in their own interest. And we're not really talking to who has power. And so for me, on things like Syria or cyber warfare, it's really interesting because when you talk to uh, the men in the Revolutionary Guard, the war, again, the Iran-Iraq War comes back to play in huge time because they say, whether you agree with them or not, that after 1982, when Iran was able to push Iraq out of Iranian territory, They say they had to go on the offensive because if they hadn't, um, then uh, Iraq would eventually either attack back or the West, and especially the United States, would figure out a different way to mess with Iran and the the Islamic Republic. And so they see the offensive that they then launched for many years afterwards, which some of them now are questioning, but they see that offensive for the, the last six years of the war as necessary to establishing their sovereignty and their independence. Again, put the discussion aside of whether you agree on it or not, but now apply it to today. And when they go on the offensive, whether it's in cyber warfare or on Syria, they see it as necessary in order to sort of put their foot down and say, hey, don't mess with us. So when we see these things on proxy war, you know, for me, I always find it really interesting because in Washington, we talk about this stuff as if what we do, you know, does not warrant a response when you're looking at it from the perspective of the countries in the region who are actually much closer to um, the repercussions of what we do in the Middle East, I don't understand how we cannot understand that there will be a repercussion. So Iran, uh, you know, fights back many times because of the policies that we're pursuing in the Middle East. Um, And so those are things that I think we need to be able to understand. Iran now has one of the most effective cyber armies in the world in many ways thanks to what we and Israel did um, to launch cyber attacks against Iran. So in many ways, you know, we have to sort of think about the far-reaching consequences of what we're doing. Whatever you may think about what's going on in Syria, A lot of what's happening or you know with Hezbollah I mean Hezbollah is something that I think like in Washington when you talk about Hezbollah people just they they can't even contain themselves (laughs) but what I you know I think when you think about it through the perspective of those who are in power in Iran whether you agree with them or not again but put yourself in their shoes Hezbollah is necessary for them because if if it is not there, it means that Israel and the United States have much more power and are able to sort of um, push Iran around a lot more. And so these are the sorts of things that we have to really, I think, think about a lot more um, in our policies here.
1: Absolutely. Uh, look, I agree, and and and, and you know, uh, at, at, at the risk of uh, perhaps reiterating something that you've already said, I want to I want to build on it mm-hmm. because I think this is a really really important point. It really goes to the crux of what's going on in the region right now uh, and a lot of the problems that we see one is uh when we talk about humanitarian catastrophe uh we don't describe iraq as a humanitarian catastrophe Mm -hmm. even though we've been bombing it for 25 years and then we're upset with iraqis that they haven't become a genteel civil society when they've been under sanctions and bombs for 25 years right and then we talk about syria rightfully so as a humanitarian catastrophe but we talk about a humanitarian catastrophe only under the prism of Assad. And it's true to talk about what the Assad regime is doing as a humanitarian catastrophe. They are crimes against mm-hmm. humanity, but they're not the only crimes against humanity mm-hmm. that's going on in that country. So when I have conversations with people in Washington, and I say, everything that you're saying about Assad and Iran's support for Assad is right, but why aren't we talking about Nusra and okay. ISIS and the Saudis and the Kuwaitis and the Qataris and the Turks? And they're like, you can't possibly compare that to Iran's support for Assad. I'm like, okay, so it's a sliding scale of humanitarian mm-hmm. catastrophe. It's not the geopolitical chessboard and trying to take Syria off of Iran's side of the geopolitical chessboard and bring it over to ours. So you're telling me that's not what it is? Right. Silence.
2: Right.
1: So let's not pretend that human life is the priority here. It should be. Right. It absolutely should be. But don't sit here and tell me that just because it's the Iranian government that's doing it, it's bad when everybody's hands have blown on it to some degree right. this drives me crazy right. because our values in my humble opinion forbid forgive me if i'm preaching a little bit our values should be our interests mm-hmm. but they're not right so then when we criticize repressive regimes in the middle east for not prioritizing values and instead prioritizing interests it it it, it, it cheapens the concept and it weakens the cause
2: right no it definitely does and i think that that's what um i mean look like just uh a few weeks ago when saudi arabia you know basically lobbied the u.n to take its uh you know to (laughs) i mean that was ridiculous and 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 yet you know we sit aside and we think that that's okay the next day i get whatsapp messages from the men that i do research with saying you know we need to like here's the petition that we wrote and blah, blah blah you need to know about this and I think that what's really interesting about, we're basically shooting ourselves in the foot. And I I think the Obama administration has done a lot better than the Bush administration. There's still a lot of faults. But I think we really need to understand that um, we play, uh, we're playing a dirty game in the Middle East that is really hurting us uh, not, and not hurting people in the region of course but also hurting our own interests and we're um we're playing a game that i think goes against what's um it's it's not a very smart game for many of the reasons that you're just saying because uh we're very much playing into the proxy war between or the cold war really um that in some places is a hot war between Iran and Saudi Arabia that yeah. we're very much a part of
1: very much so very very much so um man, I could talk about Iran and Saudi all day, but I actually have other <laughs> questions that I want to ask you. Um, so this is one of the questions that I wrote down. And um, I wrote it down because I think it's an important question that I think you have a, a unique ability to answer because of uh, how much time you spent doing the fieldwork in Iran and just being in Iran, right? So you, you're able to soak things up in ways that those of us that have to sit at desks in Washington, D.C. can't necessarily mm. soak up. So. I've always been fascinated by the relationship between state and society Mm -hmm. in the Islamic Republic. And we've talked about certain aspects of that over the course of our conversation so far. But most observers outside of Iran that I've come across seem to think that the regime 100% disregards the will of the people. But it doesn't seem so clear to me that that's the case. Mm -hmm. It didn't seem clear to me 10, 11 years ago when I was there. But if anything, it seems to me like... The regime has spent the past seven years trying to heal the rift between state and society and Mm -hmm. you talked a little bit about that in terms of what they've been producing media wise from paramilitary organizations but and and especially after the 2009 election and you referenced that specifically but what are your observations having spent time on the ground around doing field work um, about uh not just the paramilitary organizations and what they've been trying to do but you know the government as a whole because even though the government's not monolithic I I I think it's safe to say that majority of Iranian stakeholders that were a part of the government, not all of them, but most of them were like, we have a problem, Mm -hmm. and and we have to fix this. Like, what other kinds of things do you think, first of all, do you think that they've been working on this besides what you've already described? And if so, what kinds of things have you seen?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think, um, you know, this is a really good question and a tough question because because the Islamic Republic is not monolithic and and because there are so many centers of power you know it's not just that it's not monolithic I think most governments in the world are not monolithic but because there are so many centers of power in Iran it's very difficult to sort of answer this question because there are some centers of power in Iran that will try to ease things that are going on in order to again heal this rift between state and society um, and then at the same time, a different center of power, for example, the judiciary, will will tighten things up. And so you, you kind of feel like it's very schizophrenic and it's difficult to assess. Um, but I do think, for the most part, yes, the Islamic Republic and the different centers of power recognize that they had a problem post-2009. Um, they've tried to work on it in different ways. Um, but I also think that... Um, young people in particular, um, have responded in very interesting ways too. So I think a few things are different. One is that the Islamic Republic recognizes that because of the sheer number of young people in the country, it cannot always antagonize them because eventually that sheer number of people can overwhelm them if if the time comes. However, like we talked about before, there's no indication whatsoever at this point that, that um, people in Iran want A revolution or want any sort of regime change. Um, There are moments in which I think the Iranian population has acted very wisely um, and opting for reform over revolution especially um, after the Arab Spring. I think they've realized even more so Um, and just like we were talking about in the parliamentary elections last year we kind of saw that Uh, but I think that um, you know the there's this Thing now that's going on that people, social scientists and journalists are calling the lifestyle movement. So there's this uh, young people and people in general sort of putting politics aside in many ways and and are just trying to enjoy life in, in the ways that they can and are pushing back culturally and are pushing back socially against the restrictions. So it's not even about politics per se anymore but it's pushing about back up on the cultural restrictions in the country and the social restrictions in the country whether it's form of dress or how you hang out or um, you know the, the the different ways of being that that you can um, sort of take on in Iran so I think that's one way but I, I do see that you know, and this is where you can see factional and fighting in Iran. I think is when you start to think about this topic a lot more, because you see that there are certain centers of power in Iran that really want to um, lessen this rift between um, between the state and, and and the citizens, and then you see other parts of this of the um, of the state that are afraid or don't think it's right. So there are hardline factions in the government that. In many ways, they don't think that, they truly do not believe that we need to, that the Islamic Republic needs to lessen the way that you know restrictions are put in place. So it's something that they're constantly dealing with themselves. And that's, I mean, I'm not giving you a clear answer because I'm not sure that there is a clear answer on this.
1: I think the answer that you gave is about as clear of an answer as could be given. I mean, I always tell people that if Ironski seems schizophrenic, that's because it is. Yeah. 100%. Definitely. 100%. Yeah, no. Um, gosh. I have um, I have a, a ton of other questions, but I want to make sure that I ask you a, about EOB because I, I know I've, I've kept you for for a long time already. But I, I want to get the eop question, in because um, I'm a big fan, so you're you're the co-founder of an awesome Iranian American organization called Iranian Alliances Across Borders, uh, or EOB for mm-hmm. short. Um, shout out to the uh, entire EOB crew, uh, that's fam. Uh, so if you guys are listening, I'm sure you are because you guys roll deep. Uh, <laughs> respect to all the EOB kids. <laughs> Uh, tell the people what motivated you to create EOB because uh, I actually don't know that story, and uh, what EOB seeks to accomplish in the Iranian American community.
2: Sure. So um, yeah, this is EOB. Um, we Nikoo Paydar and I founded EOB um, in two thousand and three, and really the the impetus for EOB came because it was post nine eleven. The Iraq War had just started, um, and we really felt that there, it was a hostile environment. We were college students at the time, and we really felt it was a hostile environment in the U.S. I
1: share that sentiment.
2: Yes, um, and uh, especially as Middle Eastern Americans. But as we were thinking about, you know, how do we organize – because at the time also there was a lot of talk about potential war against Iran and all of this stuff, and we really felt like there wasn't a community that we could tap into to even – a, discuss these issues, and B, understand, okay, if we even wanted to organize about this sort of stuff, any of these issues, how do, how do we do it, where do we go? Um, and at the time, we realized the only sort of definition of an Iranian community, because really this notion of Iranian-American wasn't really Iran at the time, so this no, the, a notion of an Iranian community was sort of our parents who— in many ways look to one day go back to Iran um, and so really felt themselves in exile uh, but we all had grown up here and we felt very American um, but at the same time Iranian but there was no commonality of where who who makes up our community how much are we how many are we in numbers uh, what are the different sort of issues that we face all of this sort of stuff and so we began to to realize that okay um we wanted to work on this issue but from the perspective of our generation we didn't want to get into the politics of iran we didn't want to get into sort of you know what should happen in iran and because that was sort of the, the dominating the dominating you know conversations that were happening all around us um, we wanted something that dealt with who we are as Iranians who were born and raised or raised in diaspora. Um, and so we started um, with this idea of IAB, Iranian alliances across borders. And the first thing that we started with was a conference, actually, where we brought together people from all over the world, um, artists, intellectuals, NGO activists, activists. Um, who were working on these issues in different ways. And we brought them together to talk about, can we even talk about a diaspora community? Is there such a thing? Um, and through those conferences, we held a few of them, about three of them. We began to see the holes in the community and where we could begin to build one. So at the time, actually, NIAC was around. Uh, we had start- NIAC, I think, started one year or so prior to us. Then we had started... And that was kind of it. There really wasn't many other organizations. A lot of them started to, you know, there was some networking organizations that were beginning, but nothing that was trying to sort of build a community. Um, and we decided that what we really wanted to do was um, to fill in some of the holes that we were uh, seeing in our, converse, in our conferences. And so one of the biggest holes that we saw was, um, you know, in order to be able to even talk about an Iranian-American community, we needed to build that community. And where is the most effective way to build it is young people. If you don't instill in young people the notion that they belong to a community and that they can fight for their rights in that community and they can fight for their rights in the larger American public, then it's very difficult to catch them when they're in their 30s. Um, And so what we wanted to do is we began to um, think about, okay, how did other communities in this country do it? Because we're lucky in that we live in a very diverse country and we live in a country in which minorities have fought for their rights. And so we began to really talk to uh, Hispanic communities in this country, Armenian communities, black communities various different communities and we began to see that one of the most effective ways was to start in high school and to start with camps Um, because when you start at that age you begin to build this notion in the in young people that they they can belong to a community but more importantly you connect them to each other from all over the country and they begin to have a network and then when they're in college they have a very effective network i mean the jewish american community does this to perfection in many ways um, and so that's what we started we started Camp Ayanda and we started that in 2006 and it was very difficult to get uh, you know Iranian parents to travel at, <laughs> at the time the oldest of us in the organization Nico and I were the oldest we were 24 years old so yeah. we were traveling around the country saying please trust us with your kids yeah. you don't know who, who we are <laughs> you know we're only a, a few years older than your children uh, but we promise you we'll take really good care of them and um, but you did and we did and so the first year we only had nineteen but now we have two camps of over hundred fifty students each that come from all over the country respect and um, and what's really incredible about it is that now we've had students who've been with us pretty much we've, we've also started a camp job on which is for middle school students but now we've had students who have been with us all throughout high school go to college are our, our counselors for this or uh, for camp and then have now are now young professionals and so slowly we're beginning to see sort of this community come together and then they feed in and they come in you know the intern or work for NIAC and for all these different organizations and I think that that's really where um, where we have to there are a lot of places in our community that we need to put our focus on our money and that's another thing we can go into about you know oh, lack let's. of funding <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> um, but I think that uh, I really think that if we, we can build a really incredible community if we focus and, and build our youth the correct way. And one of the things that we're really sort of passionate about is is building, you know, we wanted to build a community that we, Nico and I, and then many of the other people who were, the you know, in the first few years of EOP did not feel like we belonged to any of the Iranian communities we found around us because we didn't feel like it was an inclusive community. It wasn't a progressive or, you know, sort of critical critical community and we wanted to build a community we wish we had had and so for us it was really important that when we when we're building the curriculum for things like I it includes a, a respect for other minority communities in this country and learning how we can learn from each other and build alliances because in reality I know your like to think that we have a you know this really great huge amazing community and in some ways we do but we're very small a number yeah. we're very small in number and Two ways will get us influence, either a lot of money in this country, and we have it, but we don't put it to to use in the way that it'll get us power, if that's what you're thinking, you know, political power or social power. But the other way is building alliances with different communities, and we're not very good at that. And so building alliances with Arab-American communities, with Armenian-American communities, with Latino communities, all of that sort of stuff for different things that are going on in the U.S., we have to learn how to do that. And and we wanted to start that sort of thinking among young people.
1: I mean, I can I can vouch 100% for the effectiveness of, of what you guys have done. Uh, I think the track record speaks for itself. Um, I'm a huge supporter. And I'm a huge supporter for two reasons. Uh, one, I'm a huge supporter because uh, everything that you just described, uh, I believe in. So... Um, you know, there there's a uh, a thought connection there in terms of the right way to go about stuff. But also, and perhaps more importantly, uh, I wish it existed when I was a kid.
2: I know me too. you know, <laughs> because
1: then I wouldn't have had the quintessential identity crisis. and right. you go back and talk about nine eleven. like that's when everybody pointed out to me that I, I that I was different. Yeah, I didn't feel different, yeah, until nine eleven. And then everybody let me know real quick, right that I was different. and and I think that is. The reason if not one of the reasons why I do what I do for a living.
2: Yeah I know that that is the reason I started even studying Iran because before that I was spending all my time in Latin America I was studying things in Latin America and then 9-11 happened and everyone was like oh you're Middle Eastern you're Iranian blah 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 and all of a sudden I started to realize who am I and that that sort of identity crisis where I think you know for for young people who come from immigrant communities I think understand that identity crisis very well and that's something very difficult to explain to someone who came here older for who, who's sure. older but I think that that's something that for us we were sort of the first generation in our community to go through that right and those of us who are now in our sort of early to mid 30s were the first generation to go through that here and that is something that I think is is very important and unless we address it I think can lead to anguish for many years that you know i know i had um and, and i think that that's something that for me when i see our students who go through ayanda they kind of they get through that in the first you know few days of camp ayanda and then they're kind of then they they know and they own the fact that they're iranian american and they love being both iranian and american uh it took me a long time to come to that because i just didn't know where i fit yeah. um so it's nice to to be able to sort of have that space for them I,
1: I can't emphasize so i can't if you if you have gone to camp allende or or you've worked for IAB or or you work with IAB, obviously you know everything that nagas and i are talking about right now is 100 percent legit if you are my age or nagas's age and you're not familiar uh take our word for it, and if you don't want to take our <laughs> word for it, uh, you know, read up, c- come and talk to some of the campers. Um, yeah. But I can actually speak from experience because even though, like, I was a supporter before I ever met really anyone. Like, I just, I heard about it from uh, Siamak Namazi, bless his man's heart, and yeah. we, we, we should talk about that before I let you yeah. go. Um, he's like, you should check this out. These guys are cool. Um, and then his dad told me you guys were cool, and I was like, yeah, they are cool. Um, and then I met some of your campers and mm-hmm. some of your employees, and I met you, and I met Shirin, and I mm-hmm. met your brother. Um, uh, you know, I, I met Mana. I met Roshan, who's like my all-time favorite. Yeah. Um, shout out to Roshan if you're listening to this. <laughs> uh, Roshanimal,
0: <laughs> I love that girl.
1: Um, and I think the thing that stood out to me, and, and you really hit the nail on the head when we talk about this identity crisis, is um, you, you, you didn't feel forced to choose. Yeah. Um, like I, it took me a while to get to the point where I felt like I was the best of both worlds. Right. And that's how it should be. Right. And and I see these young kids coming out of what you guys are doing, and, and, and they come with that perspective, that mentality, and that belief system far sooner yeah. than I had it. And, and I think that's, to me, one of the most important things.
2: Yeah, because first of all, it, it saves them energy and anguish over years to come to that. So that means they can spend those years doing other things. Exactly. And more than anything, what I found is that they come out with such a confidence because they know they, they begin to know who they are, but more important than anything, they find a community. So, you know, yes, we're lucky in Northern Virginia and the DC area and those who grow up in LA in many ways and, and you know, these or these hubs of the Iranian community are lucky because they grow around with they grow up with people and they probably know other Iranian Americans. But we have students who come from deep south where there are no Iranians, where they're they're one of the only or who come from you know rural parts of Illinois and there aren't any other Iranians or or much less any any other minorities and so for those students it is so key to have a moment like this and then even for the students who come from places like LA or the DC area they then they begin to see that hey um, the Iranian Iranian Americans who live in New York have a different sort of reality than than where I grew up in LA so maybe I can't talk about the Iranian community as if it's all one thing yeah maybe there is a diversity in it and I need to respect that and then more importantly when they go to college they have friends from all over and that I think that sort of confidence that that it gives them I think is something that's important and what I'm waiting for and I'm excited about is seeing where all of these students will be in 10 years time because that's when I think we're going to really begin to see the power of our community Um, because they're going to they're going to all be connected to one another and they're going to be aware and critical and know that they have a community that they should be standing up for.
1: I, I like that you made that last point, uh, especially because I see something very similar with a lot of NIAC interns. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, um, like and in, and in, in we have not, a NIAC interns that are particularly in the DC area because once the school set, school year starts, right, th- that's where the interns are going to come from. But in the summer when we have you know eight nine ten interns, they're coming from all over, yeah, and like you said, this network gets created. Mm-hmm. And you know, and they stay in touch, and, and, yeah. and, and they roll deep, and it becomes a crew, and then and then there's overlap, and the EAB kids and the yeah. NIAC kids all know each other, yeah. and it's this beautiful thing that literally did not exist no. when we were there. We're their not that much older than that. No, we're not. That's but crazy yeah, thing. We're talking crazy. like we're 50 years old, and we're, we're not. not. Yeah. No,
2: and that's and, crazy. And it's exciting. It's really exciting. Yeah. It's
1: super exciting. Um, it, it it bodes well for our community. It bodes yeah. well for, um, just just. The, the future yeah. uh, broadly conceived so you know uh, respect to you uh, respect you. to all the EOB kids um, I'm a huge fan and, and I donate and all of you people should too put Thank your you. money where your mouth is <laughs> go to the EOB website google it donate support your Iranian American community organization yeah, and, and I'm Ni- not Ni- just saying that Ni- because Ni- no. I work in NIAC I'm, you, I'm not saying donate to NIAC right now I'm saying don- donate to EOB and help build your community in a way that will make life better for everyone. Um, If our listeners want to learn more about EOB, or better yet, if they want to make a donation to EOB, and you definitely should, uh, where can people go to learn more?
2: Uh, Our website is www.IranianAlliances.org. Or you can find us on Facebook, and then all the information is there, too. Facebook, it's the yeah. up
1: And you should definitely check out the Facebook because you can actually see pictures.
2: Yeah, pictures and videos. A lot of cool IAB stuff on there. A lot of cool stuff on Facebook.
1: Mana's doing a great job. Mana, I know yeah. you're listening to this. Yes. Keep up the good Huge work. Huge shout-out. Um, I feel like we've covered so much. and yeah, I, I And I can totally keep going, but I, I, I can't keep you here all night because we actually have work to do tomorrow. <laughs> um, so before I let you go, uh, is there anything you want to plug? I always that's how I end every single oh, really. podcast is there anything you want to plug I'll, and, and, and I'll tell you what start with uh start with the Twitter handle so if people want to follow Nagas and, and and absorb her knowledge where where can they find it <laughs>
2: uh on Twitter my handle is Nagas you it's go. all together there you easy. go Very easy um anything else no I don't want to plug it. I thank you for doing this
1: no it's my pleasure like I it's said so nice you, to talk you were on the, the short list and, and I know that people are going to listen to this and think that it's awesome um And I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Um, Hopefully... You know, as you get settled in your postdoc, um, you know, in like six months or a year after and, and especially after the book is done, I can bring you back on the podcast and, 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 and you can talk about the book and, and we can hear how things are going. Yeah. will come back. Yeah. Give I more would, knowledge yeah. to the people. F-
2: fingers crossed. everyone's on their good vibes that the book will finish soon.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's a couple of young budding Iranian-American scholars that uh, that are writing books right now yeah. uh, or that are in the process of finishing up and they are going to be coming out soon. Yeah. So I want to get all of you guys on the podcast so yeah. we can give shine to people people that deserve it because in addition to giving knowledge to the people one of the things that i'm hoping to accomplish with this podcast is shine a light on people who might not get the line light sh- shown on them is that a word shown yeah. <laughs> that might not get that light
2: yeah
1: but they deserve it yeah because they're doing cool stuff uh they're good people they're super talented and and that is why you're here now thank and you and hopefully that's why you come back so thank you Thanks. Respect, Ezra. and uh that's it great <laughs> bye thanks for having me <laughs>
0: Ooh, 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 yeah. ooh. Come on, come on I see no changes Wake up in the morning and I ask myself It's like worth living, should I blast myself? I'm tired of being poor and even worse, I'm black My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch Cops give a damn about a